You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Greetings fellow time travelers. Before we set off on the next stage of our journey, I want to say thanks again to all the people who support our efforts on this podcast series, Paul and I, uh, by signing up to the patreon.com site. It's the finances that come from there that make the rest of the podcast series possible. So if you're already there doing your bit, thank you very much. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to be, go to patreon.com, look for me by name, follow the yellow brick road, part with a little bit of cash and you become part of the community. You get an as live question and answer session that Paul uh, and I do every week, which seems to be quite popular. You ask the questions and I answer them straight off the top of my head. And that kickstarts conversations that can that can grow like topsy. We cover topics, history, politics, current affairs, anything and everything. Archaeology, philosophy, travel, the state of society, childhood memories, everything. Everything and anything comes up. Um, we also have competitions and prizes. and But more than anything else, you become part of a community of like-minded thinkers. So, I'll hope to see you there in my patreon.com site. Uh, but now it's time to get back to the podcast in question, so strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Brutal territorial conquest sweeps across the Americas. In its wake, arguments rise up in favour of slavery, claiming some men are meant to rule and others to serve. Other people make plain their opposition, raising their voices and railing against the abuse of power. Questions are asked about what it means to be human and alive. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In last week's episode, we travelled to Russia and got an insight into what makes the world's largest country tick. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. Well, our journey through time is picking up speed. This week we're travelling to the year 1550, as two opposing sides in the debate about slavery go head-to-head in an intellectual battle for the moral high ground. The conquest of Central and South America is making some people very rich, but at the same time it's wreaking devastation on the indigenous people. Today we're in the Spanish city of Valladolid as voices rise up to condemn what's happening, seeking protection for their fellow human beings. We're in Spain, 
It's a story that crisscrosses the Atlantic in many ways, but it's based, the event, the, the moment in time is in Valladolid, a Spanish city. The date is August 1550. That's where we are this week. I should say going in, it's, it's quite a, a philosophical consideration, this one. It's a big topic. It's quite complicated in many ways. And I, I had to simplify it for myself to try and come to grips with it. So please allow a degree of licence <laughs> for me this week if I summarise and simplify. So to, to set the scene, at this time in, in August 1550, we're in the, the grand hall of the Colegio de San Gregorio in, in Valladolid. So imagine some grand hall, some grand location. Gathered in there are 14 theologians, experts in in the study of, of religion and the philosophy of religion and so on, and how scripture is to be interpreted. So picture the scene. There's, there's these 14 experts in the, in the study of religion, experts in Christianity. And they've been summoned by King Charles I of Spain, who, as well as being the King of Spain, is the Holy Roman Emperor, having been made so by the Pope. Uh, they're there on his, uh, his behest, and they've, they've come for a debate. It's a debate about the, the human rights, believe it or believe it not, the human rights of the Native American populations of the Spanish territories, the Spanish colonies in Central and South America. It sounds quite modern, really, doesn't it? You know, they're coming together to discuss human rights in the 16th century, but there we are. The point was that, obviously, Columbus bumped into the Americas in 1492, and from that point on, Spanish and then Portuguese and other European groups were, were going in there and pretty much raping the landscape eight ways from Sunday. But right from the beginning, people were asking questions. What was happening? What was seen to be and known to be happening to the native populations was stirring emotions back in Spain, back in Europe. And that that's also amazing because it, it's easy enough to think about the, the image of the conquistadors, you know, and how all the armoured men and they just go in and they just, they treat... I always, I used to always imagine it as adults going in and abusing children. It is how it felt to me. I know that's a, a dreadful oversimplification, but it felt as if they burst in on on a, on a human on human populations that were vulnerable to them, it's sophisticated in all sorts of ways culturally, and you know thousands of years of coming to terms with the cosmos from their own point of view. But but they were they were vulnerable to the technological superiority of those incoming Europeans, and, and obviously they were also vulnerable to the diseases that they that they brought with them. So it's, it's it's easy it's easy to think that the people arriving just didn't care about the native population. And in many ways, most of them didn't. However, right from the beginning, right from that first contact, there were those who said, now come on, this isn't right. This is, this, we have to at least take a, a breath and, and contemplate the impact that we're having here. In addition to the, the, the theologians who were there as an audience really, to, to listen to, to what was being said. There were two speakers. One was a humanist scholar called Juan de Sepulveda, and the other was a Dominican friar, a Dominican churchman, Bartolome de la Casas. 
Bartolome de las Casas, and they were each going to put one side or the other of this debate. It's 1550, the debate, but as I say, there had long been an acknowledgement that something was badly wrong. 1511, in fact, another Dominican friar, Antonio de Montosionos, had been on the island of Hispaniola, which was one of the first places. That's That's what Columbus found. So the locals there experienced contact with Europeans right from the beginning and it, it was on there that the enslavement and the abuse and misuse of the population began and this Dominican friar Antonio de Montesinos had, had looked on in horror at what was done and he, he quoted the prophet Isaiah quoting I am a voice crying in the wilderness am I alone he meant in looking out at what's happening here and seeing it as a, as a horror that's unfolding and he said he accused his fellow Spanish, fellow Spaniards. He said, you're in mortal sin. These people that you're among now and, and abusing in this way, are these not men? Are these not rational souls made by God, in the image of God, in the same way that we are? And that therefore the, the teaching of Christ is that we must love them as we love ourselves. Why does that thinking, that tenet of Christianity, not extend to these, these fellow human beings? And so it, it forced, because the, the, the incoming Spanish, they were treating the people as though they were animals, less than human, as though their thoughts and their, their existence as human beings just didn't, or wasn't there, that there was an absence from these people, that they weren't even people. And so, as I've mentioned before, as we've, we've considered that the Spanish brought in a system called encomienda, which was... Spanish nobles were given granted territories in the New World by the king. They were given little kingdoms, basically. And in return for notionally offering their protection to a population within that, that territory, a prescribed territory, that those people then automatically owed the nobles their labour. In return for being protected, coming under the umbrella provided by the, that nobleman, that they had to work for that nobleman. It was a kind of protection racket, except that instead of demanding money, they were demanding work. The conquistadors and the, and the, the Spanish that went in, they wanted slavery. They wanted to just take slaves. And But in, in comienda, out of some or other sense of propriety, was the option that they were given. As though it wasn't slavery, but it, it was a hand of cards that the locals were being dealt, and it, it pretty much worked out the same as slavery. That's the context, and so this debate was summoned by, by Charles I. The theologians, they heard first from Sopulveda, the humanist scholar. Now, he had never been across the Atlantic. He knew not of what he spoke. He hadn't been, he hadn't seen, he hadn't contemplated at first hand what the Native Americans were being put through. It was all theory for him. Nonetheless, he spoke in favour of what the Spanish were doing. And... He, in order to justify what was happening, he looked all the way back to ancient Greece and the teaching of Aristotle, for example, who argued long and hard uh, in his own lifetime, Aristotle, that there were those who were born to be natural rulers and there were those who were born to be natural slaves, that it was in the natural order of things. He basically meant that some Greeks, some Greeks were born to rule and everybody else on the planet were 
<laughs> pretty much, you know, up for slavery of, of one kind or another. And Supalveda drew on, on, uh, on Aristotle's teachings and he said that the Native Americans were savages, that they were cannibals, that they sacrificed one another, which they did, that they cut out the living hearts of, of their fellows, which they did given that evidence that it was absolutely the responsibility of God-fearing Spanish to enslave those people and forcibly convert them to Christianity in order to uproot what he said, crimes that offend nature. He made it a moral obligation of the incoming Spanish to do what they were doing. The other man, Bartolomé de las Casas, however, he had been on Hispaniola right back at the beginning. He had first-hand experience. His father had been a, an acquaintance of, a friend of Christopher Columbus. And so that family had been in with the bricks, as they say. They had had the opportunity to, to get in early on. And as a younger man, Bartolome had taken part in slave raids. He had owned and exploited his own slaves. So, so he knew. But he had had a Damascene moment. After years of this, you know, the scales had fallen from his eyes, you might say, and he had converted, well, he had become a Dominican friar. And from that moment, he, he campaigned on behalf of the rights of the, of the Native Americans. In 1537, he had helped persuade Pope Paul III to pass something called the Bull Sublimus Deus, that, well, it basically said that the Native Americans were rational human beings, that they were they were people, and that they had that they were humans, and they had human rights. Uh, surprise, surprise! And he kept on campaigning, and he kept on making the case. And in 1542, he was part of drafting what came to be called or remembered as the New Laws. And in 1542, those New Laws were supposed to end encomienda, to bring that exploitative system to an end, but it didn't. Uh, as, so, as is so often the case, you know, the large print giveth and the small print taketh away, and it, it didn't stop encomienda. But then, finally, in 1550, so after a lifetime of campaigning in that way, Bartholomew was part of the reason why Charles I was minded to hold a junta, a judgment, a bringing together of a group to consider what was happening. And it, it happened in Valladolid. And it, it was to answer what was in the middle of the 16th century the great question of the age which is to say, how was European humanity, humankind, supposed to treat humankind on the other side of the world? So Bartholomew, when he got up to speak, he quoted from Ecclesiasticus, let me look. Basically, his, his argument was that it was the obligation of the powerful to protect the weak. He said, deliver him that suffereth wrong from the hand of the oppressor. And he was also able to look back at the early church fathers like St. Augustine. After Paul, I think I'm right in saying that he'd probably be regarded as the greatest of the church thinkers in that early period. Uh, he quoted as well John Chrysostom, uh, who likewise spoke out about the abuse of power and the neglect of the needy or the suffering. Uh, he, this is a great line. Do you pay such honour to your excrement? as to receive them into a silver chamber pot when another man made in the image of God is perishing in the cold. You know, you, you're basically treating fellow human beings less than your own shit, which they were. 
they sat. The debate, it wasn't a it wasn't a nine-day wonder. It sat in 1550 and then it sat again and heard further presentations, if you like, in 1551, the following year. But, surprise, surprise, the decision that came out of Valladolid was no decision. They chose, the 14 theologians chose not to come down on one side or the other, which meant that both sides claimed a victory. Both sides sort of came away going back to their supporters and their listeners saying that they had won. But the reality was that Encomienda, basically, it had stalled. Uh, It had become a little bit questionable. But then it re-engaged. It it started again. I suppose all all you can say, really, and it does matter, is that Bartolome de las Casas emerged from Valladolid as the foremost spokesman in Europe at that time on behalf of the people on the other side of the world. And it's important to remember, this is 1550, this is long before the British got involved in the Atlantic slave trade out of Africa. It was long before that. And what's interesting, I mean, obviously, as we know, it took until the 19th century, you know, the 1800s, William Wilberforce and the rest campaigning for half a lifetime, abolitionists, before action was taken in the British Parliament to bring slavery to an end in the in the British territories. But what's important is to notice that right back in the middle of the sixteenth century, or right back in the right back at the time of first contact, even as the enslavement of fellow humans began by supposedly enlightened Europeans, there were those who knew it was wrong. It wasn't as though it took experience of long years of enslavement of fellow human beings before people realised. Right from first contact, right from what began to happen on Hispaniola and the rest, there were plenty of those in Europe, in Spain and elsewhere, who knew that it was wrong. And yet it took centuries to come to terms with it. Was it just money that was driving it, driving it forward? It's money that drives everything. Money and power. And people in want of money and power will turn a blind eye to the suffering of others. It's the old story. You know, the love of money is the root of evil, as it says in the old book. And people who are blinded by the possibility of great wealth and great power will walk on the vulnerable in pursuit of those goals. In considering what it is to be human, that is a that is a baseline of human nature. It's in us. It's in us now, and it always has been. It's interesting that you're saying that, you know, this is 250 years or so before William Wilberforce and the abolitionist movement here got to grips with things. But a lot of people would still say that slavery is... I mean, it's still happening. It's, it's still happening on a colossal scale. And it depends what you define, how you define slavery. There are those who say that that chattel slavery is the great evil, which is, even in Comienda, the the implication wasn't that those individual Native Americans were owned like like a piece of furniture or a horse, but they were exploited in in the same way. And so chattel slavery is where you, I'll give you 50 quid for her. 
and that that you know that's chattel slavery where you actually own the human being. But so it, it depends what you mean. There's a lot comes under the, the the bigger umbrella of slavery. But if you if you broaden it out to just mean that kind of exploitation of people who have no say and can't extricate themselves from the situation, and that's slavery. And in, in, you know you might say there are more people enslaved now than there have ever been. And you know child trafficking by some metrics is bigger. Some people are saying that trafficking in children is a bigger industry, makes more money than the international arms trade, and that it's rapidly catching up on the profits that are available from trading illegal drugs, trading children. So slavery is right with us. Not chattel slavery. You might depict, like I say, although, although who knows? Maybe within all of that, within all of the human trafficking and the child trafficking, maybe it is straightforward transactions where people are being bought and sold in that way. Uh, It will um, surely be the case. But that, it's an, it's an eternal question. It go, what, you know what it all goes, what it comes down to is that everyone knows right from wrong. We keep saying, we keep saying this. Some people choose to do the bad thing, to enslave to murder, to steal. But they still know that it's wrong. They just do it anyway. And right back in the... For as long as there have been people who have enslaved those that they can take power over, and everyone knows that's wrong. And some people, from as long as there's been the spoken word, will have spoken the truth and said, that's wrong. Everyone knows it. It's just in pursuit of wealth and power, there are always those that will set aside right and wrong. And they'll do the wrong thing because it lets them live a more luxurious life. But a spiritually sterile life founded upon great evil. People always do say, oh, in the bad old days it was different. But actually... Like you say, people always know, don't they? they yeah, always know. everyone knows. Babies know the difference between right and wrong. Babies cry when wrong happens. And they smile when good happens. You know, they, they smile at right and they cry at wrong. They know. They're born knowing this shouldn't be happening to me. Ah, this should be happening to me. That's right and wrong. It's innate. Suitors come calling at her door. The first and most powerful is King Philip II of Spain, but good Queen Bess turns him down. Rebuffed, angry and determined to fight for his religion, he declares war. Clad in armour, dressed in white and rousing her troops at Tilbury, Bess declares, let tyrants fear. In this moment, she makes her memory immortal. And England, England next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. 
For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plyman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.